like, oh, man, when is this going to end? Is there any way out? Is there any path out? And the truth is, as we look at a lot of things in our lives, and I know you have areas in your life, too, that it's impossible. (laughs) There's just nothing that you can do and, and no real reason for hope. And sometimes you just feel like wake up and smell the coffee and realize that this is just the way it is and it's not going to get any better. Make you feel better? (laughs) Well, I have a verse that should. Mark chapter 10, if you'll turn there in your Bibles. Mark chapter 10 and verse 27, we will deal with the context in just a moment as we're going through this chapter, but I want to call your attention to the key verse of the chapter, which is verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. How many of you believe that? Yeah, me too. All things are possible with God. But do we really live our lives with the feeling that that works? With the expectation that God is going to do the impossible? Oh, we go, yeah, I think he can. I'm sure he could. In another world, in another galaxy, maybe he would. But, but right now, I'm not feeling it. The impossibility of what God will do. And yet, that's really what faith is. Faith is living our lives with an expectancy that God is going to do what we can't possibly do. And if we really believe in this God, the fact that I can't do something, the fact that I have a problem that I can't solve, shouldn't be of great concern to me. In fact, it should be something I'm really excited about because I see in my life, I can't do it? Perfect. When things are impossible with men, That's when God can step in and do the impossible because we worship a God who can do impossible things easily. And he doesn't always, we can't expect him to always do the impossible, but we, knowing that he can do the impossible, knowing that he does do the impossible, we should at least have a hope that, hey, here is an opportunity for God to work. Let's see what he is going to do. Now, For many of us, as we grow mature in life, we become less and less inclined to believe in the impossible or to expect the impossible. We've been disappointed at different times counting on it, and it didn't happen. And so we can fall into this state where we become jaded and we just think life stinks and, you know, Nobody's going to do anything about it, and yes, when's the economy going to change? It's going to change. It's going to get even worse, and and we can start to look at things that way. It's one reason why here in the 10th chapter, if you back up a little bit, and you're going to see how all this ties in and why these are in the same chapter together, beginning with verse 13, they brought little children to Jesus that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. 
Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. What a contrast. Little children, and those of us who are old enough to know about how many impossible things face us. You know, to a little child, nothing is impossible. Kids think that anything can happen. They suspend their critical thinking skills or haven't developed them sufficiently, and kids will believe anything. But that's why their literature and their movies and everything really so much more fun than things that are designed for older people. Because for us, we look at things that are just the way it is. You know, no kid would get involved in a soap opera. It's too boring. But for an adult, it's like, okay, good, here's someone even more miserable than me. This is going to make me feel good. But a child, they believe that anything is possible. And that kind of childlike expectancy is something that Jesus is telling us, hey, we need to get back to that in order to believe in the kingdom of God, in order to believe that God is here, that God is working, that God can do the impossible. I heard (coughs) Greg Laurie recently talking about taking his little granddaughter Stella to Disneyland. And he said he took her in to see the Tiki Room, Enchanted Tiki Room. The Enchanted Tiki Room is the most cheesy attraction at Disneyland. I think Walt Disney made it himself, and it's all these dopey little dolls singing like animals, and and the paint's fading on them, and the music's corny. And Greg said, he's looking around at it going, man, the technology in here is just ridiculous. But his, his little granddaughter, Stella, is just entranced by it. How are these birds talking and singing? And she's just enjoying it so much. And Greg said, that's one reason why we need to be more like children when we look at what God is doing. It's why hanging around with kids is good. It's really probably why God invented grandkids. And, it, and it's certainly why we're drawn to and attracted to little kids. You know, you think about it. I, I've seen people who I never see them smile. But what do they do when they see a little kid? They're like, you know, it's like your life would be so much better if you acted like that all the time. And if you had that sense of of excitement and expectation that a child has. Um, The other night we went to see the new um, James Bond movie. And I don't go to movies very much, but went to see this one. And, you know, halfway through the movie, I'm just thinking, this is so phony. Like, wait, it's a movie. It's supposed to be phony, but there's a guy who looks like he's as old as I am, and I'm going, you couldn't run that fast. You couldn't jump that far. You couldn't get that girl. Come on, this is ridiculous. And then I'm thinking, wait, it's a movie. It's supposed to be like this. It's supposed to stretch you a little bit. It's supposed to get you to the point where you can believe a guy like that could get a girl like that. You know, that's, that's a part of what makes life exciting is to go, okay, quit being so critical, and why don't you just think about the possibilities? Because we worship a God who does that kind of stuff. We worship a God who does impossible things all the time. And if we live our lives expecting that, then we get that feeling of 
exhilaration when God comes through miraculously and we go, I was wondering what he would do. I knew it was going to be something great. Now with that in mind, let's look at this 10th chapter of Mark. Some seemingly unrelated passages, but you can see how they all fall together in one cohesive whole. The first section, no one really gets too interested in it. It's a passage about marriage and divorce. And when you read what Jesus says about marriage and divorce, it's kind of disturbing because he doesn't get into all the particulars. Most people want to know, okay, where are the loopholes? What are the exceptions? What does it take to get out of it? If you do it, can you remarry and all that kind of stuff? Well, Jesus just stays really basic with what he says about it. And, and here in this passage, more basic than he does in even any other passage. What happened is the Pharisees came to him and said, okay, what does it take to get a divorce? What are the acceptable grounds for divorce? And they had, in the Jewish world, they had basically two predominant positions. One was advocated by a rabbi named Hillel. And Hillel had the position that, you know what, if it's not working, just go ahead and dump her. And his thing was, he said, anything that, un- that displeases the husband is grounds for divorce. Of course, the woman couldn't divorce the man, but you know, that was, it just didn't work that way. But the man, he said, if she burns your dinner, that's grounds for divorce, Hillel said. So that view was popular among certain members of the population, primarily male. Now, <laughs> there was another rabbi named Shammai, And he took a much stricter stance. He realized what would happen to society if people could just bail for any reason. And so he took the stance that, well, unless there's some sort of immorality, unless there's some sort of violation, and and some people within his school even took the position that only if you marry someone and then find out that they represented themselves as being innocent and they had actually had previous experiences... Other than that, no grounds for divorce. So he took that hard stance. So the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and going, which is it? Because it's kind of, you know, nebulous in the Old Testament. There were rules about, you know, if you're going to divorce your wife, make sure that you do the paperwork. But there was no real commentary on what would be grounds for divorce in the Old Testament. So they wanted to trap Jesus, partly because they were hoping he'd take a hard-line stand, a Shammai kind of stand, and they could use it against him with Herod because you remember John the Baptist got in big trouble for expressing his opinion of Herod's marriage to his former sister-in-law and all that. So they were hoping to use his position to trap him. But Jesus you know, said, well, what did Moses say? And they said, well... Moses said, you can get a divorce, Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus said, yeah, but in verse 5, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate Jesus takes a really rigid stance, more rigid than anyone else's, really, because he doesn't even, in this passage, now, in Matthew, he says, if you get a divorce for any reason other than um, fornication, other than some sort of 
um, sexual sin, then you know you're committing adultery. But here he doesn't even include that exception. It's just cut and dried. You know what? When you get married, stay married. Period. Don't get divorced. Now, they were like, what? I mean, don't get divorced, period? Now, the disciples pulled them aside later and go, okay, come on, there's a catch here. And he pulled them aside and asked them about it, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. They're like, well, what about the exceptions? What if this happens, or what if that happens, or what if... He goes, no. When people get married, they should stay married, period. (laughs) You look at that and go, man, that's pretty harsh. In fact, that's impossible. And and over in, in Matthew, the disciples said to Jesus... Come on, if that was the case, who would ever get married? And Jesus goes, no, that's true. You don't have to get married. You can stay celibate. And they're like, wait a minute. (laughs) What is this? Now, let me say, I'm not going to go into a big discussion on this. We reserve that for other times and other passages of Scripture. Certainly, divorce is always going to be with us. And the Bible talks about the fact that if there's a if there's a case of immorality, that sometimes that causes a split so much that the marriage can't continue. Jesus here says, Moses gave it because of hardness of people's hearts. Yes, there are people who harden their hearts so much that this is going to happen. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about that exception, and also talks about, hey, if somebody refuses to live with you, if someone doesn't consent, isn't pleased to dwell with you, that there's this desertion kind of thing that you're not bound and you're so the Bible has much more to say about it and I and I want to be make you let you know I'm aware that this is a complicated issue and when you get into it you start going well fornication would that include pornography I could see a case for that now would that include just a man lusting after another woman because in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus said if you look after a woman to lust after you've already committed adultery in your heart bingo does that let me off look if you want to get off the hook there's a ton of ways to get off the hook and there are certainly people whose hearts are hard and you can make a case for hey, the word here for divorce is really not a word that means divorce. It just means put away. And you could say, hey, you know, she isolated me. She pushed me away long before the paperwork. And I, Okay, that's what they liked to do. I don't want to do that. Because what Jesus is just saying here is calling us back to what marriage is about is two people who marry each other and stay together for the rest of their life. And he says, I don't want to say anything more than that. Now, this isn't to make anyone who has failed in marriage to feel like, you know, guilty or whatever. Hardness of hearts, it's allowed. Don't worry about that. But what he is doing is addressing married people and saying, for you, it should not be about looking for a loophole. It should be about your marriage being permanent, you having that commitment that says, I want to be with you. Now, that's impossible, let's face it. 
And in the context, again, yes, God can do the impossible. But for any two people to get married and stay married, that is impossible. And we know half the time in our society, it doesn't last. But there are times when it does last. And I want you to know, if you're married with God, it's possible for you to stay married. And what we should do is expect God to do that rather than to say, well, theologically, let's see if I have a way out. Rather, our position should be, God, I want you to do a miracle for us. And whatever state your marriage is in right now, do you believe that God can do the impossible? Because yes, to salvage your marriage might be impossible. But how about expecting God to do something like that? Now, you may be single and thinking, hey, I'm never going to find anybody. This is never going to happen for me. Do you believe that God can do the impossible? Do you expect him to? That should change our perspective on everything that we see when it comes to our own lives and the status of our marriages. Now, yes, staying married for a long time is impossible. And I could ask for everyone to raise their hands who's had a marriage fail. I'm not going to do that. But how many of you have been married at least 20 years? Raise your hands. How about 30 years? Keep them up. 40, anybody? Some? 50? Anybody been married 60 years? Okay, well, we're up in the 50 years. Now, that's impossible. And if you knew these people who raised their hands that long, I'm telling you, it is. Impossible for it to happen, but look at that. It happens. And I'm telling you something, it can happen for you. If you're married, God could make you the one down the road, if he tarries, to, against all odds, to find out that God gave you a marriage that would last. And if that happens, that's a miracle. If that happens, it's an exception in our society. But I'm telling you, it's possible. And I don't care how miserable your marriage is right now. You need to understand this. God can make it last. God can hold you together and cause you to grow together. And your marriage can be saved. Impossible? Yeah. With men. He didn't say women, just men. But with God, all things are possible. You believe that. Now we move on in the chapter, and after the section about kids, we see the story that we usually call the rich young ruler. This guy comes to Jesus, and he's saying, what do I do to get eternal life? And Jesus, in verse 18, said to him, why do you call me good? He called him good teacher. There's no one who's good but one, and that's God. He said that because this guy thought he was good too. So he said, yeah, you want eternal life? You know the commandments. Follow the Ten Commandments. And he answered in verse 20 and said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. He didn't look at him and go, you stuck-up snob, you're never going to... No, man, he looked at him and he loved him. 
But he said to him, there's one thing missing now. Go your way and sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come and take up the cross and follow me. The guy was really sad when he heard this, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And now God went into, the Lord went into this discussion with the disciples, Jesus did, about the problem with rich people getting saved. And this is where the comment that with God all things are possible came up. Jesus said, if you read the passage, he said, he said, you know, for a rich person to get saved, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to be saved. Now, there are people who have said, oh, they had a little gate in the city called the camel's, you know, the, the needle's eye, and in order to get the camel through, you had to stoop them down, take off all the luggage. That's not true. What's true is he's talking about a real needle, something that's impossible, because the disciples said, that's impossible. So, so are you saying no rich person can be saved? And that's the context in which Jesus said, no, it's impossible for a rich person to be saved with men. But with God, all things are possible. And then Jesus goes on to tell him, but by the way, anything that you give up in this life, you're going to receive it in increased amounts and, and dosages. You'll not receive a hundredfold, not only in this time with what you're blessed with, but in the age to come. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, we are taught well on these things. We know that what we need to do is say, everything I have belongs to God. And whatever he tells me to do with it, that's what I will do. And that includes giving things to people who have needs. That includes participating in that which God wants to do. And we all know the scripture says that what you sow, you're going to reap. And the truth is that if you give what you have to God in a sacrificial way, do with it what he wants you to do, that he is going to make it well worth your while in this life and in the future. We all know that. But still, do we do that? Do we get to the point where what we do is take all of our possessions and offer them to God? Now, he doesn't call everyone to give away everything that we have. But he would call all of us to be willing to do that. He calls all of us to, to not hang on tighter to what we have because, well, you know, the economy's kind of hurting and projections or, hey, here's a projection for you. Jesus Christ says, if you give, he's going to give it back to you. Now, again, if we really believe that, how would that change the way we live? I mean, in some ways, it's so important. I ought to preach on it every week. But, you know, there are pastors who do that, and it's generally a self-serving way to increase the offering, and I would never want you to get that idea, and so I rarely say anything about giving. But what Jesus is saying here, the point that he is making is, even salvation is somehow connected to your ability to let go of your stuff. Now, you can apply that any way you want. But the fact is, to expect rich people to let go of their stuff, that's impossible. And we are all rich compared to most people in the world. So are we really going to let go of our stuff? Are we really willing to give it all away if that's what God told us to do? Have we ever even asked him 
How much do you want me to give to different purposes and situations? That's a lot to ask. And as he says, it's really pretty much impossible unless God does a work in your heart, unless God leads you to do that. But do we expect him to do it? Do we expect that kind of a miracle in our lives and in our church? Impossible. But with God, who knows? He could do it. He wants to do it in all of our lives. Now as we continue down in the passage there in verses 33 through 34, he told them, I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be beaten and spit on and scourged and mocked and and I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise again on the third day. He kept telling him this. The Gospel of Mark records many instances where he said it. And it really didn't soak in that there are difficult times that are coming, but it also didn't soak in that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Now, why is this put in the middle of this? Because what is more impossible than this? What's more unlikely than a guy who's coming healing everybody and teaching is going to get killed? That's, that's ridiculous, but it happened. But how likely is it that then he would raise himself from the dead three days later? You go, it's impossible. They knew that. They, didn't, they figured he must be speaking symbolically. Now, how many of us as Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead? How many of us really, I saw two hands. <laughs> there you go, there's a few more hands. We all, if we call ourselves Christians, we go, that's how I became a Christian. I got to the point where I believed that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that's a big part of it. But isn't it funny that we can say that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but we can't believe that he can provide for us if we offer everything that we have to him? Isn't it weird that, oh yeah, we believe Jesus rose from the dead, but believing that my marriage can be healed? Come on, we're talking real problems here. Not like the dead, this is way, because it's worse than death right now. And so I, (laughs) but again, a little perspective. Do you want to believe in the impossible? Then Remember, the basis for the impossible is a dead person raising himself from the dead. How do you do that? Impossible with men. With God, all things are possible. Now he goes on (coughs) next in the chapter. James and John are fighting over who's the greatest. They always do that. And we know here they're arguing about who gets to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. Now, we know from other chapters that, that uh, their, mom's, their mom was involved in this, kind of pushing them forward, and, you know, they wanted this place. And Jesus said to them in verse 38, you have no idea what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He just told them he's going to be mocked and scourged and spit on and killed. He's going, can you, can you do that? They said, yeah. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you'll be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it is prepared. Then the disciples all started fighting among themselves. 
And Jesus called them to himself in verse 42 and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, you know how the Gentiles do. Might makes right. You push other people down, that pushes you up, and they do what you say. He said, Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, it's interesting that he didn't say, you guys are really wrong for wanting to be great. It's really wrong for you to ask to sit at my right and my left hand. But he doesn't criticize their ambition. He doesn't say, you shouldn't want that kind of promotion. He just says, you don't understand how that works. You don't see where promotion comes from. And then he proposes this radical thing that if you're really ambitious, then take your ambition and turn it into a desire to serve. Turn it into a desire to be useful to others, to bless others, to do things for others. And the result of that will be what you've really been ambitious for. But the way to be great in my kingdom is to be a servant of all. Now, to suggest this to people, again, that's impossible. Are we ever going to sell everyone on the notion that you need to try to outserve each other? Those of you who are really ambitious, you need to see if you can serve more than the other person. You go, come on. I mean, is it likely that we could even do that in our church? That people would go, you know, we'd have to announce, you know what, I'm sorry, but there are so many people helping with the donut ministry that you're going to have to sign up and take turns. Uh, or what if at the end of the service, you sing the last song, no one would leave because everyone's going, um, no, you go first. Oh, no, 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 you go first. And it's all jammed up. And imagine what would the parking lot be like? What would our lives be like if we really did it? How about at home? If you go out there and you mow your lawn and you also mow your neighbor's lawn, and then he gets up earlier in the morning next time because he wants to mow your lawn, next thing you know, everybody in the neighborhood's mowing everyone else's lawn, and all those illegal aliens are going to be unemployed. And <laughs> sorry, that's probably taking it too far. But, but you'd be giving them all your wealth, so they'd be totally fine. Nice save. But, I mean, we look at it and go, come on, that's impossible. It's not going to happen. We're not going to go, you know what? Too many shoeboxes. They're starting to complain down in Pedregales. Every kid's getting like 12 presents, and so mellow out on the shoeboxes. No, it's not going to be that way. In the church, I, we were talking this morning, because you always have this thing with sound. And, and there are some people who think that our music is too loud. And they're, don't applause. And there are other people who, because you're going to feel really bad. There are other people who think it's not loud enough. There are other people who think it's just right. 
And there's always this tension. So this morning I went back and I listened to worship. Hey, I thought it was pretty good. But what would happen in a church where people were going, you know, that's a little loud for me, but I bet there's some people in there who really like it that loud. Or if you go, I wish it was a little more hardcore, you know, rock and roll, but I'm just really glad that they're doing that hymn for these old people. Or, you know, and what if, what if that's the attitude we took in church? We're like, oh no, let's do it your way. Oh no, let's do it your way. Come on, Dave, you're dreaming. It's not going to happen. People, and you're just saying this because your job is listening to everyone complaining about things not being the way they want it. But I'm just crazy enough to believe God could do this. It's impossible, but our church could become the kind of place where people, rather than always wanting it their way, where people just started wanting it someone else's way, wanting other people to go first and, and be blessed. This is what the scriptures say, Jesus himself says, hey, this is how it works in my kingdom. If you have ambition, turn your ambition into service. Now, yeah, then we will have a problem. Too many Sunday school teachers, too much money, you know, that we can't even find enough missionaries to support. The missionaries are going, please quit sending us money. It's getting embarrassing. And, I, you know, I'll take that chance <laughs> to exhort you to, to believe that God can do the impossible and to really expect it, starting with you, starting with your life and with my life. What if this could happen? Now, the chapter ends with Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. And again, he's healing a blind guy. You believe that? You can believe that, and you can believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but you're having a hard time believing about your marriage, about your healing, about your family, having a hard time believing that you could actually start to serve, that you could actually trust God enough to take everything that you have and go, here, God, who do you want me to give to? How do you want me to share? How do you want me to be involved? You know what? We're just fooling ourselves when we pretend to believe in resurrection from the dead and blind people being healed, but we can't even believe that God can do the impossible in these most basic areas of our lives, in our relationships, in our finances, in the use of our time and service, three major areas where what God sets as the standard is something that's impossible for us to do. And yet, he does the impossible. He wants to do that. He wants to do this in all of our lives and in our churches and in our community. Wow, what if he did? What if it happened? What if our church got a reputation, for instance, that... Man, people go there and their marriages get healed. It's amazing. They like hate each other and, and they're ready to get a divorce. Papers are all filed. But, you know, then they go to that church and they start loving each other. And they want to stay married and they want to save their families. And you never hear of anybody in that church getting divorced. And not only that, look at that church. 
they're like, they're giving offering back because so many people are giving that they just like run out of ideas of how to spend it. And so they're giving it away down there. And that, that church is the kind of place where you go there and everybody, I mean, you go out after church and somebody wiped off your windshield and took the dents out of your car and, you know, they're over here, let me help you. And they open doors for you and they want to know how they can help. And wow, impossible. But what a world it would be. What a witness we would have if we believed that that could happen in our lives and through us in our communities. Now, what situation are you dealing with? What is it in your life that's impossible that you just pretty much have given up on? You kind of go through the ritual of praying for it every once in a while, but you just know it isn't going to happen. What if you started to believe that it would? What if you suspended your critical spirit a little bit and like a child, you just began to believe that God really is someone who can heal blind people and raise himself from the dead and therefore there's nothing outside the realm of his possibility? What if you started to believe that this economic crash that we're going through is something that God maybe wants to turn around, bring good out of and and bless our nation again? What if, what if God has given us the president that he's about to give us because the guy's going to turn into some brilliant person who solves all these problems and then puts 666 on your head? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, just kidding about that part. But, I mean, wh- what if he does? Is that something that you can't even pray for because you just think it's so ridiculous? Or in your life, what you're struggling with, what's frustrating you? Is that something impossible that God can do? I saw a couple this morning who I was just praying for this week, and they had tried everything to get pregnant and just couldn't happen. and They couldn't talk about it without crying. It was so frustrating. And and I I just felt when I prayed for them a few months ago, I felt like God was going to do something. And and this week, the Lord just brought them to my mind, and I prayed for them again. And they told me after church, after first service, that, hey, we're pregnant, we're doing... (laughs) I'm like... It was so rewarding because I didn't go, no way. (laughs) I'm sure it's false results, and if not, you're probably going to lose a baby anyway. No, it's like I had this feeling that God was going to do it for them. And he even reminded me of it this week. And I'm like, it's so exciting when that happens. Now, how about setting yourself up for some more of those kind of aha moments, for those kind of childish naive kind of thrills that come when you believe that the impossible is going to happen and then God does it. Oh man, it doesn't take too many of those to make it worth all the ones that don't happen because you realize, wow, God is the God of the exceptional. He's a miracle-working God. He's not through doing impossible things for us. Let's expect it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We, every one of us, we, we struggle with thinking that things are impossible. And once it's impossible for men, we give up hope. And we're sorry. We know nothing's impossible for you. And so for those areas of our, of our lives where we've prayed in the past and now we've just kind of given up, 
or where we kind of pray half-heartedly, but we really don't expect you to do anything. Maybe it's in our relationships. Maybe it's in somebody desiring to have a relationship and they think it's impossible for you to find someone for them. If it's an area of finances, if it's an area of service and commitment of our time, Lord, help us to, like a child, be naive enough to believe that you're going to do impossible things for us. Thank you for being the kind of God who can do the impossible. In Jesus' name, amen.